Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there. Thanks for joining us today. I am excited to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Lindsay Hoffman of the University of Delaware. Uh, At Delaware, she is the Associate Director of the Center for Political Communication, and she's an Associate Professor in the Department of Communication. Lindsay's thinking all the time about politics and how we communicate about it. And in particular, her research focuses on the intersection between technology and political engagement. So how does the technology that we use, whether it's social media um, or news that we get online, how does that affect the way we engage politically? You're going to hear that she's done a lot of thinking about this. This is part of her research, but what she's really, really excited about and what she clearly does very well is engage her students on this kind of um, subject. She is the director of a program called the National Agenda, a speaker series that demonstrates civil dialogue. She's met really interesting, very well-known people as a part of this series that she directs. And we wanted to talk to her about how to communicate better about across difference. That's something we talk about a lot, but we especially were interested in her experience as a university professor, as someone who sees what's going on in universities today and might have some ideas and some tips for us about how to have conversations with students who are returning from the university over the holidays. Whether you have um, college age students in your family or not, you're gonna find what Lindsay has to say really interesting. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm super interested in your work and how you came to it and everything. But one of the things I'm excited to talk to you about is I'm excited because you are used to interviewing people. So it's nice to talk to someone who has already that experience. And I think I could be wrong because we don't ask this question, but I bet you are the um, only person we've talked to who has interviewed the president elect. That's um, right. (laughs) Like in 2017, right? Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I've met him several times, actually. Um, and uh, he calls me Doc. He knows who I am. Because <laughs> so, he's a University yeah. of Delaware grad, right? He is. He yeah. is. And I have a quick funny story about yeah. um, when uh, when I interviewed Joe Biden and John Kasich. Um, after the event, the president of the university had a, a reception at the president's house. And then some of uh, Biden's people came over to me and they're like, can you send your students? Cause it's a class too. So the students usually get to meet with the speaker. He said, can you send your students over to the Biden Institute? Um, and I said, all right. So they go, we go over there and <laughs> he ended up talking to my students for three and a half hours over ice cream. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I, like, it was just, um, he's just such a personable, like pleasant, interesting and interested person. Um, yeah, the, the interview itself, and we'll link to it in the show notes so people can watch it. I mean, it's from, I think, like October of 2017 mm-hmm. or something. So it's funny with the benefit of hindsight to look back on that uh, and see. But what's really was especially interesting to me was, one, you, as you said, you were interviewing him with John Kasich, and he and John Kasich know each other pretty well. And this is part of your national agenda series, which is about 
civil dialogue, importantly about civil dialogue. But also, I think it's it's really important to demonstrate a friendship between people who disagree significantly on um, political issues, on policy issues, but do have very uh, important common ground. The National Agenda Series is, I was watching one of the um, events from this year, 10 years old. Um, that's, I mean, that's a pretty long time to have a series going. And it seems like it's just picking up um, steam. Like this year you've had, um, you've moved to online, like we all mm -hmm. have for things. Uh, you had one of the co-founders of The Onion. You've had um, Mary Louise Kelly from NPR. Uh, you've had people who are in entertainment who have done portrayals of political events or political um, activity alongside political strategists. The theme this year is we are the people. Like, how did that come about? And I assume that was all kind of in the cards before the pandemic, because you have to plan those things out pretty far in advance. What, what was the thinking with the theme and how did the pandemic really affect what you were doing there? Sure. Um, so yes, the theme did come up. We usually uh, try to come up with a theme in January or February um, to sort of set the tone for what kind of speakers we're going to be inviting. Typically in an election year, we call the series The Road to the Presidency. Mm -hmm. And we interview a lot of political consultants and campaign folks and pollsters. And we decided that this year we want to focus on the citizens more than on the political, uh, you know, machinery. Um, and so we really wanted to talk to journalists. We wanted to talk to, um, like you said, entertainers uh, and, and try, try to make it just an interesting, fun uh, conversation that isn't just about, you know, all the like minutia of the election. So more about bigger topics, bigger ideas, where journalism is heading, um, you know, what, what this looks like in a pandemic. But um, yeah, We Are the People was, was sort of when I, when we came up with that, I was playing around with the idea of we, the people, obviously. Yeah. And then I just started saying, we are the people. We're the people. We're the ones who make this decision. And so I kind of wanted to make it empowering um, and make it empowering for citizens. So uh, it's, it's worked out as well as it, as well as it could. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty pleased with how it's turned out, but, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's something I've been doing for a while now and how to, how to orchestrate and, and navigate conversations with people who, may disagree with each other, with people who, um, you know, come from different points of view, uh, and how do I kind of maintain that sort of center position where I'm not, um, I'm not leaning one way or the other. And with, uh, with Joe Biden and John Kasich, as you said, they are actually, they genuinely like each other. Yeah. Um, they had lunch together before our events, um, a private lunch together. Um, and it's, you know, it was evident that they, that they really enjoyed being around each other. No, I, I mean, it really comes across in that interview that they are uh, friendly and they respect one another, even when they disagree. And in part, you can see there are points uh, at which they disagree. And in a way that disagreement reminds you of how, how important that relationship is uh, because it enables them to disagree really strongly and and still trust that that uh, they're going to be treated with respect by the other person. So I think that's a really interesting thing when you talk about demonstrating civil discourse to see that on stage between two people like that. I mean, I, I was watching something else where you talked about how in 2016, you had students the day after the election 
who said to you, I'm glad we talked about the election because I've been in other political science classes today and my professors didn't want to talk about it or didn't bring it up at all. So I think this is really important. I mean, you are the director of a center for political communication. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about what that entails, the workshops you're doing there, what you're doing with students. Is that something that exists in other places? Uh, is this is the center there unique in terms of what you're doing and how you're approaching it? Because one of the things we really want to think about as the holidays come up are students you know, spending more time with families, having opinions, and there being disagreement. I mean, that happens between us and families anyways, but particularly for engaged, active young people who feel very strongly about their opinions, um, there's an opportunity, I think, for tension there. So, so what are you doing to kind of deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis and support students, but also help them get to be better communicators about political issues? Uh, well, first, I want to correct. I, I'm the associate director. Oh, I'm uh, we sorry. Do have, we do have a director. Um, her name is Nancy Karabjanian. Uh, she does a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. She's a produced, former uh, television anchor and producer. So, um, uh, but I do, I am the director of the National Agenda Speaker Series. Okay. Um, in regards to whether anything like this exists elsewhere, what I can say is that there are a lot of people like Heterodox, like Civil Squared, like uh, Free Intelligent Conversations, like Living Room Conversations. There are a lot of uh, grassroots organizations, nonprofits um, that are engaging in this kind of work. I don't think we see it as part of an institution at a university in the way that we do here at the Center for Political Communication. Um, and it's been our goal from the get-go uh, to, to foster a civil dialogue, even when we got started in uh, 2009, 2010, when that wasn't really a topic people were, were worrying about so much. Um, but it's just something that's always driven, driven me. And I can say that from a personal uh, level is uh, I sort of joke with my students that part of the reason I, I do what I do and I study what I do is that my parents couldn't be on further ends of the political spectrum. Um, and, you know, they're divorced, obviously, <laughs> by this point. But, um, you know, I, I just became concerned about how people with different politics cannot even seem to be in the same room together sometimes. And that's what's driven my work is to, to try to be like, okay, how can we find the humanity in each other? And that's the first piece of advice I usually give people is, is find a way to see the humanity in this other person. Um, if it's with someone you don't know, uh, that's where living room conversations, free intelligent conversations are a great conversation starter. Start with an icebreaker, get to know who that person is. What makes, what's their mission in life? What would their best friend say about them? When it comes to your kids or your family, people you know better, you don't really need those icebreakers necessarily. Um, it might be fun, but you might need to connect on a more human level by sharing a, a, a favorite memory. Um, just starting off that conversation intentionally um, by, by finding that humanity in the other person and then setting down some, some basic ground rules about you know no name calling, um, can feel free to leave the conversation if it gets uncomfortable, but uh, that we're here to listen to each other. We're not here to persuade one another. That's a really important component of this. Mm -hmm. Listen to understand, not to make your argument and persuade. Um, and I think if you follow those, those kind of simple guidelines, um, it's, 
it can make for really, really good conversations that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Your your own academic research over and above what you're, in addition to what you're doing at the center, focuses on the connection between technology and political engagement, right? And I would imagine with students in particular, um, that's a really robust kind of research field, right? Um, and students today are probably more technologically savvy than at any time in the past. They use technology, particularly social media for communication, for information, that kind of thing. Um, what, I, that's a huge subject, I know, and I know you've written on it, but it, you know, sort of top level, when you think about the connection between technology and political engagement, particularly as it relates to your students and what you see in the classroom. What's going on? Um, and, and how does all of that affect polarization um, that causes a lot of this tension in, in discourse? Well, I can I can talk to that both um, anecdotally and in terms of some research that I'm, I'm in progress of, of putting together for publication. So I'll talk about the research first. Um, it's not so much about polarization, but it's about uh, generational differences in how people perceive um, fake news versus satire versus real news. Um, I conducted this research a few, couple of years ago, uh, but as with everything academic, it's, it sits for a little while before I can get it up oh, yeah. and going. Um, but uh, it, it basically, I, I measured just um, young people and boomers. So basically a combination of Gen Z and millennials and boomers, and I compared them uh, in terms of being exposed to one of three different stimuli, a piece of fake news, a piece of real news, and a piece of satire about mm -hmm. the same topic. Um, it happened to be about the Mueller investigation. Uh, and the, the satire component came from the New Yorker, and the headline was something along the lines of, millions of Americans willing to volunteer to speed up the Mueller investigation or something like that. Um, so the only really kind of interesting, unique finding that came out of that was that there weren't a lot of differences between young people and older people in their perceptions of what they read um, because we then asked them, you know, what, what did you just read? Except that young people were more skeptical of real news than older people were. Oh, so, that's interesting. So younger people who I thought would be more savvy and yeah. be able to identify satire, fake news, real news, they were kind of skeptical of all of it. <laughs> they, they were um, less likely to, to say that what was real news was actually real. Um, and maybe this is because older people have practice reading real news. Um, it came from the New York Times. Uh -huh. uh, maybe young people are more skeptical because everything's online and it all looks the same and you can't decipher. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to explore that as I, yeah. as I wrap that uh, research project up. But anecdotally, um, post-pandemic, I can tell you that my students want nothing more than to be off of their technology. Yeah. Um, they want to engage with each other and with other people. And, and I think they're really re-evaluating their relationship with technology um, and, uh, you know, wanting to engage with others, wanting to go and march and protest and engage, do, do things politically that are are in public and with other people. There's obviously an important historical component to this as well and, and a generational component um, because each generation has come of age with different technology. Right. Uh, so, for example, younger people don't really understand um, 
kind of the hardware that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to technology. They're good with apps, they're good with software, but they don't understand what a, a router is or you know how how their their wireless connection works. Um, so, and that's something I've, I researched that I call technological efficacy. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out some of the research I've done shows that the more eff- efficacious you feel about understanding the technology you're using, um, the more likely you can use it for political purposes. So there's a relationship between being confident in your technological skills and being able to use that technology for political purposes. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder too, um, have you seen between like 2016 and 2020, going back to this this point about um, students talking about the election after the 2016 presidential election, have you seen differences in the way students engage in political activity whether technology is involved or not. Um, But also, I suppose, on top of that, how they use technology, has that changed in the four years? 100%. Um, When I came to UD in 2007, uh, we were labeled by, I believe it was the Princeton Review, as one of the most politically apathetic campuses in the nation. And coming from the Ohio State University, where, um, you know, presidential candidates will often visit, uh, Bruce Springsteen was there in 2000. was that 2004, the night before the election, um, along with uh, John Kerry the night before. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was kind of like, oh dear, this isn't, this is not a good thing. So um, ever since I got here, I've been just trying to, again, you know, creating, helping to create the center, creating a minor in political communication, engaging with uh, dozens of students on undergraduate research over the years. Um, It's been very much like kind of a grassroots effort, but 2016 really changed things um, because a lot of my students were, they were paying more attention to that election than I'd ever seen before, um, but it was more for the entertainment of it. Mm. Um, I think they thought it was funny. I think they thought it was also a little bit frightening, but that can be entertaining in its own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the University of Delaware tends to lean liberal in terms of our student body. And a lot of them assumed that their classmates felt the same way that they did. So one thing I do at the beginning of the semester when I have particularly a larger class uh, where students um, might be hesitant to share their opinion if they if they don't feel that it is the majority opinion, is I will do a Pew survey of their um, ideological types. Pew has this great uh, quiz that puts you on one of, I believe, seven uh, points on, on the ideological spectrum. And then I can have my class take it as a group and then show the data mm. after they've taken it to show the students, hey, look at this. 20% of the students in this class say that they're conservatives. Yeah. And 30% say that they're moderates. So li- the liberals in the classroom who think that everyone else thinks the same way that they do have to be like, oh, I have to keep in mind that the- not everyone shares my point of view. So um, I think that's a really useful tool is like, uh, you know, how do you demonstrate to people that there are people in here who don't agree with you and they could yeah. sit right next to you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of joke and I say, ooh, you're surrounded, you know. Right, right. Get- because it's, it's it's like you had kind of have to laugh like oh yeah I guess people are different from me and why wouldn't I expect people to be different from me? I mean so that's what college is about in a lot of ways, right? Absolutely. <laughs> or should so, be should be I'd say. Should be yeah. Um and but it isn't always and I think mm-hmm. that they they do get in these bubbles and what I try to do is is help them convince them to get out of those bubbles and that it's interesting and fun and challenging and informative and stimulating to get out of those bubbles. And the other thing I tell them is that I also do some research and teaching around um, uh, cognitive biases or sort of the things that our brains do automatically that we don't really think about. 
And uh, one of those is um, the idea that, that if you think about something enough, um, when you connect it to, when you encounter content that's in, similar to that information that you've been rolling over in your brain, it's more easily accessible. Um, so, so the more we practice these kinds of conversations, the more we say, okay, let's, let's tone it down. The stake, the other great advice, piece of advice is to recognize that the stakes are not that high. Mm-hmm. Bring the stakes down. You and your uncle arguing about, you know, uh, immigration or w- whatever it is, you're not really going to impact that policy, probably, probably. So the stakes are not that high. Um, the stakes are higher for let's keep a relationship with this person yeah, yeah. who I grew up with, who, you know, used to take me fishing or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so lower the stakes. And then the more you do that, the more you practice those kinds of skills, the easier it becomes. So a lot of my students are like, I just don't know how I could talk to someone who voted for so-and-so or who... Right did this. And I'm like, guess what? You are, <laughs> you, are. you just don't You're, know it. <laughs> you don't know it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think if we open ourselves up to that and don't make assumptions about, um, who is, who is around us, but yeah, in terms of their, their level of interest, um, their familiarity with, uh, technology, um, it's just, it's, it's just completely flip-flopped to the point where they are telling me things about the election or about policies that I wasn't even aware of. Um, so yeah. they're, they're incredibly engaged, incredibly involved um, in terms of voting this year. I usually have to beg and plead, please get registered to vote. Please go to polling place on polling on election day. And this year they were, had requested their mail-in ballots like the, as soon as they could. One student from Pennsylvania, um, an important county outside of Philadelphia, uh, had requested a mail ballot but didn't get it in time. So drove the two or three hours to get back to that county to wait two hours to, to vote in person. Um, and I've never seen that before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen college students do that before. Yeah. Um, and they were excited. They were happy. Um, it was, it, it felt, it, I, I could see it. It felt so important to them. That they participated in that election. So this is, I mean, this to me is also really interesting thinking about student activity, about the way they engage things. And I think, I mean, another reason I really wanted to talk to you is because um, I think very often we hear, I don't know, I don't know, I I won't necessarily say it's hyperbole, but, but kind of, you know, um, what, what I would say as somebody who used to spend all my time in a university um, and teaching in that a caricature of the way universities are today, right? And so you hear, oh, you know, look at what's happening to colleges today and students all feel one way and, you know, they only do this or they do that. I mean, in a way you're right there in the trenches with the students and you're seeing, um, trenches is a bad example because it's like a war thing and that's not the, that's not <laughs> the way I think of great university experience as war. Um, but I mean, you're seeing students, and I've heard you say in several different um, in several different interviews and things where you're talking, students actually aren't trying, or for the most part, students aren't trying to silence one another. They they are interested in hearing diverse points of view. They're just not always sure about how to go about it. So you give an example of using the Pew stuff, so that you'd see at the beginning of the semester, hey my opinion is not the same as everyone else in this classroom and vice versa. Um, but how do you, how do you one identify among students, their desire to hear diverse points of view when adults have trouble? I mean, like, you know, right. in our workplaces, everywhere else in our homes, 
we're afraid to talk to one another when we disagree. So now you've got students who've got all these other things going on. How do you how do you see in them this this desire to encounter other ideas, and then how do you support that desire? You've talked a little bit about that, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think um, universities are a great sort of. Uh population for studying these kinds of changes because it's like a little city you know so you have to look at how do the different administrations and at the college level at the university level um you know at the department level how does everything kind of work together to create a climate uh like i think we are doing are actively doing at the university of delaware which is to say we are a place where people can share their points of view without being ashamed or feared of being silenced um, I'm hosting weekly conversations with our student body uh, post-election just to talk about, okay, how do we, how do we create pe- political peace building? Like, how can we reach across the, 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 the partisan lines? So I think that it's just about um, setting a standard as a university, that this is something that's important to us. And I know it's important to our president, uh, President Asanas, um, who has been involved in several of our civil dialogue initiatives, um, including free intelligent conversations that I mentioned earlier. Uh, But I'll I'll go back to this by talking about a couple of things. So what I will say is that what we have done at this university generally is we do not prohibit uh, speech. Um, We had Milo Yiannopoulos come to our campus uh, several years ago and some People wanted to ban him from the campus. Um, I fell strong on the line of, of not doing that because- and Other campuses uh, definitely did ban they did. him actually, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Berkeley uh, yeah. had a, a really <laughs> a terrible fallout from, from yeah. that. Um, but I, I also, you know, sort of feel frustrated by um, the dialogue about, you know, all professors being liberal or, you know, that, yeah. that college students are in some sort of liberal bubble because as I just- demonstrated my classes are mixed in on ideologically even on an east coast university um you know i'm accustomed to i went to the university of kentucky as an undergrad i went to the ohio state university and for graduate school i'm used to a much more mixed environment as i said my parents are come from different backgrounds so it just um i think if you can create that curiosity uh then establish some rules and some practices um and and begin doing those things more frequently, um, it cultivates intellectual curiosity. It cultivates a, a, a desire to want to know more about other people. Um, and I think our students absolutely want that. And it's also just a peri- because of the period of lives that their lives that they're in. I mean, they're maturing emotionally, um, they're, they're maturing intellectually. And I think this is the time when we have to instill in them that not everybody thinks the way that you do, and that's a good thing. Um, we, we do want to come to consensus on a lot of issues, but we won't always be able to. And that's, we have to acknowledge that that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think you've mentioned polarization a couple of times here, given the extremely, extremely polarized environment that we are in, in this country right now, um, it's never been like this. It has never been worse. I, okay. I don't want to go back to the civil war, but <laughs> right. um, it hasn't been wor- this bad in, in at least a couple of a, a generation or so. Um, but what's happened is, is technology is part of that, part of that problem, because we saw the rise in political polarization increase with cable television news. That's where it started. We've seen it increase with social media use. People are increasingly in their own echo chambers. They only listen to voices that agree with them and shout back the same thing. Um, 
But, and we know that liberals and conservatives actually treat social media differently. In fact, liberals are more likely to unfriend uh, someone because they have a different political viewpoint than them, than conservatives are. So why is that? You know, what yeah. liberal, you think that being liberal is being more open-minded, but in this case, it's not. So, um, and there, there are inconsistencies on, on both sides, but no one's, no one's the, uh, the good kid right, <laughs> in right. this argument. Um, everybody's, you know, to be honest, the, the good kid is, is the, probably the one in the middle, the moderate, which is the majority of people in this country, who's like, wait, can I say something? Or are you guys just going to argue this whole time? Yeah. So I think that we have to kind of acknowledge that, yes, we're polarized. Um, and uh, I think, you know, this administration has, has polarized us even more in some ways. But um, there are a lot of people who are just kind of in the middle and aren't really sure and just want to be able to have a conversation. And if if far left-leaning people and far right-leaning people are intent on making it an argument and persuading people, they're never going to reach those folks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think what you said earlier about the goal in having these kind of conversations across difference is really important. Um, and we've heard people say this to us uh, before too, taking winning off the table and thinking about uh, whether it's healing relationships, better understanding that kind of thing. I mean, I think about, when I think about this concern, and I know we have people in our audience who have it, right? So, you know, my grandson or my, you know, my niece or so-and-so is going to come home over the holidays um, and we're going to spend time together. Hopefully they're going to spend time together, but in whatever format that is, they're going to spend time together. And we don't want to be fighting about things, right? Whereas if you look at this from the point of view of as you describe your students, being very active, very interested, very engaged, an opportunity to learn about the things that motivate that student, about the things they're excited about, to better understand that student, instead of sort of being afraid of these kind of conversations, if we can set the right tone for it and we can have the right kind of expectations, it's a huge opportunity to, I mean, who doesn't want to be asked about the things that they're interested in and have an opportunity to talk about that? Um, and I think in the best of all worlds, you would be doing that with people who disagree, whether it's because they're much younger than you or much older than you or whatever, they have different political opinions. One of the things um, that has the pandemic has done, so I have a friend who is a professor and we were talking about students and about the adjustment they have to make. And he said, everybody keeps thinking about the students and about how hard this is on them. He said, I didn't sign up to teach people online, right? Like that's totally changed the way I approach the classroom and the way I have to think about getting, communicating with my students. I think the same thing is going to be true for a lot of people at the holidays. My family just had a Zoom call over Thanksgiving, which we spent most of the time trying to figure out how to get everybody on Zoom <laughs> and see each other. But I mean, some of those conversations are going to be weird because they're online and they're in a different context. What have you learned in the course of having to move teaching online um, that can help people with setting those expectations, setting the tone right, and having some of those conversations that hopefully are going to heal relationships, help people understand, learn about different points of view. Well, yeah, there's a couple of things to unpack there. So first of all, I can totally relate to that professor. Um, I actually created my first online course uh, last summer. Um, so I'm really glad that I got the training to do that because yeah. I, I brought a lot of those skills over. Um, and for folks who think that, you know, somehow professors are phoning it in, it's so much more work just oh to, to coordinate and, and to get 
you know, to engage with my students because they're more than happy to put themselves on mute and just not engage. Um, so I think that's the hardest part is if you have a large group of people, um, because then people will just be like, oh, I can just mute out and I can go play a game or do something else. Right. Um, so I think having a smaller group would be recommended. And maybe if you have a larger family group, uh, Zoom chat, Zoom conversation, maybe break people into breakout rooms yeah. um, and have, give a prompt, give people a sort of a prompt. And then um, I found that using the chat function in Zoom is helpful as well. If anyone wants to alert to a particular problem or if they're on mute, but they want to share an opinion or an idea, but they don't want to interrupt. Um, but I think I'll, I want to point out something else too about, again, generational differences is that one of my students was talking to me about how she and her family have uh, like a group chat um, where apparently they argue about politics a lot and they're, they all have very different views and it becomes very um, volatile. And uh, they go, they go to name calling. She says that one of her, her family members called her a libtard. Oh. And um, she, she, of course, she said, I don't care, you know, whatever. And I've seen this among this younger generation if you think about the kids from Park, the Parkland shooting, if you think about Greta Turnberg, if you think about a lot of these younger activists who have come out and people have come after them on Twitter and attacked them, they have brushed it off their shoulders. Mm. Like, like, I don't care. You can call me names. You can do this. I'm used to this. I've been on social media since I was in seventh grade, you know, yeah, or good point. whatever it is. So they, I think what older people need to think about is that name calling, first of all, isn't a good way to, to demonstrate civil dialogue to a younger person no. um but it's also something that they're they've already seen they're already familiar with they have probably seen far more bullying than any of us ever saw in our childhoods um and particularly online yeah so um i think you need to approach them with a more of a curiosity about them um and their viewpoints and i think i want to re-emphasize that whatever you're arguing about or whatever you're having a conversation about keep those stakes relatively low because otherwise um, you're going to take it far too seriously. Um, and it, it's, it's ultimately not going to make that much difference in the long run in terms of actual policy. Um, what you need to try to do in those conversations is find the, find the common ground, the common area and recognize that, you know, this is another question I asked my students um, at the beginning of uh, my classes is I say, okay, how many of you in this classroom personally know someone who is sitting in office? A politician who's in office and maybe one it's Delaware so maybe one or two will raise their hands it's a small state um but then I say okay do you talk to that person uh every day about what's happening in the state house or in uh you know congress and like well no I'm like well so everything you read everything you see is mediated you mm. don't know what's happening behind the scenes so you have to look at all the information that you're taking in is, is mediated. It comes from a source that came from a source that came from a source. And that means that sometimes think, things get misinformed along the way or different information gets presented in one format versus another format, particularly when you're talking about more polarizing cable news networks like Fox News and MSNBC, you're going to be seeing different content. Mm -hmm. They're two different streams of reality. So when you start to have a conversation between a person who watches MSNBC all the time and a person who watches Fox News all the time, they're not going to understand each other. Um, so I think the most important thing is to diversify your media portfolio before you go into these conversations. So that you can see, okay, what are people talking about who don't agree with me? Like, what are their talking points? Um, if we're thinking about, you know, voter fraud is I think maybe the 
what's happening with the election, uh, post-election. Um, yeah. You know, was there voter fraud or did people vote who weren't supposed to vote? So find out what people are saying on other sides. And Twitter, this is very easy to do. You can follow people on all sides. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, it's also something that I think people need to take ownership of, the, uh, ownership of and take a responsibility for uh, consuming information as a skeptic, a healthy skeptic, um, and not, don't be cynical. Don't, don't opt out and say all the news is fake and nothing's right. I can't trust anything. Um, and falling into, you know, conspiracy theories. No, let's not go that far. Like the news is created by human beings. Human beings are flawed. Uh, the news tries to get it right. Uh, we have professional standards for journalists. Um, there are conferences and organizations where journalists talk about best practices, but we're human beings. So, Things will, you know, every story that you hear in a, in a newscast is going to be framed in some way. So I talk about framing in my class a lot because framing isn't a choice. It's not like a journalist says, I'm going to frame this story right. this way. Right. It's they're saying, okay, what's the important part of the story? Here's what I think is the important part of the story. Um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's about an individual or a personality um, rather than, you know, for example, like I often say that it's hard for news media to cover complex issues, particularly um, television and, and internet news that's broadcast at you uh, because you want to keep people's attention. So yeah. it's hard to talk about an issue like poverty or hunger with just a two and a half minute story when this is such a much broader issue. So I'm getting off uh, to, on a tangent a little bit, but it, it's, it relates just because I think you have to go into those conversations with the right raw material, yeah. uh, a diverse set of raw material to say, okay, I have seen that argument before. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm glad that you went that way because I really did want to make sure we covered what I think this, I've heard you say it several times um, in different places about diversifying your news portfolio. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, and I think that it's really important for all of us, not just for students, but for everybody to be thinking along those lines, both because we, we occasionally think, oh, well, um, somebody in the news is going to tell us the truth with a capital T, right? And, and as you say, there's always framing. Um, we all have biases, you know, recognizing that we have those biases and, and, and recognizing that others have them, uh, I think, gets our expectations better suited. But also understanding the point of view of somebody else that you're talking to, I think, is really important. So I know you Absolutely. said you are working on a book, but tell us a little bit about your research, what's coming up for you, what you're focused on. Uh, well, um, in terms of uh, beyond research, I'll, I'll come back to research, but in terms of uh, engaging with our, our faculty, staff, and students on UD's campus, I continue my efforts to institutionalize civil discourse and civil dialogue as part of who we are as a university community. And I'm very happy to have on board our Office of Student Life, um, uh, and they have been very supportive of all of our initiatives, and I'm starting to see a difference. And maybe it's just the political science students right now, maybe it's just the leadership students, the ones who are kind of being roped into, you know, being the guinea pigs for these first few rounds of conversations, but hopefully they'll spread the word to other students, and we'll get engineering students and business students and those students who tend not be as politically engaged as um, those in the social sciences and uh, other fields. Um, in terms of uh, research, uh, yes, I am under contract to write a book that is looking at the intersection of technology and politics and sort of the history of how these two things are intertwined. Um, my original 
title for the book, which I guess was too wordy for, for the publisher, was The Technology of Politics and the Politics of Technology. So it's sort of looking at how we wouldn't have the internet we have today without politics being involved. And mm -hmm. we also wouldn't have the government we have today without um, certain te technological decisions being made. So it's it's a bit of a, a history of the internet for social scientists in particular. Um, I feel like there are a lot of books that talk about the internet at, and technology in a very complex computer science type way, which isn't really resonating with my students in particular. Um, and then we have social scientists who talk about the broad implications of the internet without really thinking about the types of decisions that went into, say, the type of protocol we ended up using um, to access uh, the internet. So what I want to do is kind of bring those things together and provide mm -hmm. an economic, uh, a, a social, and a theoretical underpinning that kind of brings these things together. And one thing I'm doing um, in each section of the book is I'm also introducing uh, international examples. We often tend to focus so much on sure. the U.S. Yeah. Uh, we, we think about ourselves a lot, but um, there are fascinating examples of how technology is being used for, for good and for bad um, in other uh, parts of the world, um, you know, from the Arab Spring to, you know, the great fire, firewall in China. Um, so I think it's important for people to understand that from an international context as well. So I am on sabbatical next semester, so oh, that means means I should be 100% on my book, but I'm awesome. also homeschooling <laughs> yeah. a 10-year-old, presumably until, uh, what they say, May? I think I just heard this, this morning that May is when the vaccine might be available to everybody. So we shall see, you know. You You're going to be busy one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, I'll be busy one way or the other. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think my my rule in life is like, in it, the same thing with conversations, like, I, you know, I can go in what I want to happen. Um, but if it doesn't happen, I'm, you know, I can't, kick myself, life happens. And, um, you know, if I go into a conversation that I want to be civil, um, to be perfectly honest, I have actually never had a problem in my classroom <laughs> with students arguing with each other. There's one time that it happened. Um, it actually served as a really great example. So this was before the 2016 election. It was day one of my media and politics class. And I was talking to my students about what political communication is. And I said, political communication isn't just speeches and advertisements and you know inaugurations and whatever it's also things like and i showed them a lot of pictures of different um different things that were going at the time on at the time and one of them was colin kaepernick taking uh, a knee that was the year that he did that um and i should know better than to bring in sports analogies and examples to my class because i don't know anything about it but i thought it was a great example of political communication he didn't say anything um, but he said it so much, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I was describing that and I heard from the back of the room, um, a young man just shouted out, he's a scumbag. And I was kind of surprised because I was like, okay, this is the first day of class. <laughs> That's yeah. impression it's a bold move. <laughs> it's a bold move. You know, I'm, first of all, we don't do any name calling in this class, even if it's of people who aren't in this room. Um, so that's, I want to say that first, but second of all, I'm really curious as to why you said that and why you think that way. And then as I was saying that, a, a young African-American woman next to him raised her hand um, and said, you know, he's ignorant because he doesn't understand why Colin Kaepernick took his knee. And they started kind of bickering a little bit. And I said, I said, stop. I, talk, I put on my mom hat. <laughs> I said, stop. And then I just let this very uncomfortable silence hang over the room mm. for what felt like a long time, but probably was only a you know, number of seconds. But then I said, is this how you want the rest of the semester to go in yeah. this classroom? Yeah. So I mean, sometimes if you do have those kinds of arguments, you can stop that and be like, hey, 
is this how we want this to go from now on? Because if we do this now, we're setting a pattern. We're going to do it again. Yeah. And I tell you that, that that student who yelled, he's a scumbag, ended up being very productive in the discussions, even on issues that he didn't necessarily agree with or understand. And he sort of, I feel like, I can't say from his perspective, but to me, it seemed like it was kind of an eye-opening experience for him. And so it's okay to go in with expectations, um, but know that we can't control yeah. what we're going to do, what, what happened. We can't control pandemics, obviously. Yep. So I think if, if anything, the pandemic and motherhood have both made me like, you never know what's going to happen. Um, so just go in with the best of intentions and um, be able to just, again, see the humanity in other people and then just step back and be like, you know what? They're hurting too. This is yeah. awful for everybody, whether you're wearing a mask, you're not wearing a mask. It's, it's, it's all of this is awful for everyone. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe the pandemic could bring us together. I really thought that it could at the yeah. beginning of this. Yep. I, yep. I was thinking a lot about 9-11. Um, yep. I, yep. I, I lived in Chicago when 9-11 happened and <clears throat> it was remarkable to me how everyone literally rallied around the flag. There were flags everywhere. Uh, the president's approval rating jumped to 94% from just over 50% in his first year. Um, and I really, I, I think we could have navigated this pandemic differently if we hadn't made it a partisan um, conversation. If we'd, yeah. if, we'd start, if we'd started mass producing masks that had the American flag on them yeah. or proud to be in the USA or something like that. I think all of us, this is one thing I end a talk that I do about engaging in these kinds of conversations is I think there's, there is one way to bring us together. We might be divided on a lot of issues, but I think we can all say like, I'm glad I'm an American. I'm glad I live in this country. I'm glad I have freedom of speech. I'm glad I have the right to vote. I'm glad we have, you know, the abundance of resources that we do. So if I think if we can appeal to that, sometimes um, it's it's maybe the one way uh, that we can bring us bring ourselves together a little bit more. Um, and I'm not, mind you, like super patriotic, like yay flag person. Um, right. right. It's not, it's not something that's part of my identity, but it, over the years, I've come to this conclusion that that might be the one, the one linchpin, um, that if we can capitalize on that, if we can make that accessible and make that what people think about when we start to think about how relationships with each other, rather than think about those differences, thinking about those freedoms that we share, those obligations, those duties as citizens that we share. Um, I think that, I think it could have gone a lot differently if we had taken that approach. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Well, we really appreciate your time given all of the things that are going on and we will link to the things that we've referenced here in the show notes. Um, and hopefully people will take advantage of the fact that so much of what you have is available online and they can see it and they can hear some of these great interviews themselves. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It was really fun and yeah, um, we will fun. definitely be in touch. So. All right. Sounds great. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Lindsay is a fascinating person. She's a, an energetic person and she's doing really interesting things. And so she's one of those people who I'd love to talk to for hours and hours. Of all the things we talked about, when I think about what I will take away from this conversation is something that I've heard her say here and in other places that we need to all, whether we're students or not, diversify our portfolio of news sources. 
in terms of trying to understand other people's points of view, in terms of trying to get uh, sort of more knowledge about the people that we're likely to be engaged with. I think this is good advice for all of us. And I think particularly if you know you're going into a conversation, whether it's over the holidays or any other time, with someone who is who doesn't always share your opinions, it's not a bad idea to kind of get a sense of what that person is reading or seeing and have that as a backdrop to your conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.